Hello, everyone. Welcome back to I See What You're Saying, the Discipline Listening Podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and today it is my complete pleasure to introduce our next guest, Kwame Christian. What doesn't Kwame do? He is the founder and CEO of the American Negotiation Institute. He travels the world as a highly sought after resource and works with companies, nonprofits, government agencies, and more, teaching them the finer points, skills, strategies, and techniques in the world of negotiation. He's also the host of the world's biggest negotiation podcast, Negotiate Anything. He is a TEDx speaker. He has his own LinkedIn learning courses. He is a two-time best-selling author. He's ranked in the top 1% of all chess players globally on chess.com. He's an amazing father and husband. He's got a great story. He's got wonderful perspective. There's so many things we could talk to Kwame about today, but this conversation really is going to focus around his most recent book, How to Have Difficult Conversations About Race. Kwame does an eloquent job sharing his perspective, his experience, the backstory, which is amazing and powerful in and of itself of why he was motivated to write the book. It's literally a how-to manual. How do we increase our perspective, increase our empathy and understanding? How do we approach these conversations and approach people in a way so we're outcome-focused, we're learning, we're not defending? He literally goes through what to say, how to approach it. It's He does an amazing job. And for anybody, professionally, if you're in human resources, leadership, organization development, business development, if expanding your toolbox and understanding on how to have successfully have such important conversations now more than ever, I cannot recommend Kwame's book enough. It's true for people who have that personal need or interest in their life as well. It really is an amazing book. And honestly, the book could have been titled How to Have a Different Conversation About fill in the blank anything, because all of the steps and perspectives Kwame includes in his book aren't just for difficult conversations about race, but therefore any difficult conversation on any sensitive topic. He just chose to frame it around the very important topic of race. I'm really, really excited to share this conversation with you. Kwame's an amazing guy with great perspective. We're going to pack as much into an hour or so as we can. But before we go into that, we got to thank our sponsors. As always, thank you to Humantel. Please head over to humantel.com and experience industry-leading training on how to accurately interpret and evaluate emotional changes that people experience based on their shifting facial expressions and non-verbal behavior. It's amazing training. I can vouch for it. I've taken it all myself. Please head over there and enter the code INQUASIVE25, I-N-Q-U-A-S-I-V-E-2-5 for a 25% discount off of all of their online training. Please also head over to Emotional Intelligence Magazine at ei-magazine.com and check out their ever-growing library of emotional intelligence-related content, articles, podcasts, videos, training, education, so much going on over there. Please check it out. And for all the investigative interviewers who are with us today, please check out certifiedinterviewer.com for the International Association of Interviewers. That organization is at the tip of the spear, fully focused on providing elite interviewers with the resources they need to stay elite and continue conducting morally, legally, and ethically successful investigations from their investigative 
resources, to their legal updates, to their educational events. Of course, if you qualify for the Certified Forensic Interviewer designation, there's so much going on over there. Please check out certifiedinterviewer.com for the International Association of Interviewers. Thank you for taking the time to join us today and listen to this very important conversation with Kwame. I appreciate you being here. So now without further ado, Kwame Christian. Kwame. It is so good to see you, man. You have a million things going on. Thank you so much for carving out some time to talk to me today. Hey, man, it's my pleasure. I will always make time to chat with you. I I appreciate that, man. That means a lot. So as I was planning this conversation, I'm like, dude, what do I talk to him about? Do I talk to him about negotiation? Do I talk to him about teaching? Do I talk to him about podcasting? Do I talk to him about chess? Because I can't play chess. And it's one of those things that I wish I did. Do I talk to him about being a dad? You know, the conversations we've had and how we apply what we do to being dads. But then I read your book. And we're going to talk a lot about your most recent book. You've written two, obviously. We're going to talk about your most recent book, which is amazingly written about such an important topic. And I realized that this conversation needed to be an intervention. Mm. Oh, I am intrigued. (laughs) (laughs) because man to man, dad to dad, you've got to start sharing the cinnamon toast crunch with your boys. (laughs) You can't be hogging the cereal. Your boys got to eat too, man. Bro, listen, I, I, I agree. I've gotten to that point where I do the right thing but I don't feel good while doing it. I come home and I, I, I imagine this just finishing up a podcast. I come home and the, the cinnamon toast crunch all over his face and there are three on the ground. I'm like, you're wasting this gold. Um, but yeah, man, it's uh, I, I've learned reluctantly <laughs> to give them a piece. When we had our son, one of the first things my, my brother told me, he's got two kids. One of the first things my brother told me was, you've now eaten your last warm meal. And you've now given up the last of anything you want in the house. Like, it's just, it's not yours anymore. You're going to eat last. You're going to eat cold. And when you open the pantry and there's a little bit of cinnamon toast crunch left, and that's what you've been craving. It's not yours anymore. Like he told me that when Gabe was really, really young. And that's one of those things that, so when I read that in your book, I'm like, I'm not letting him get away with this. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, you're so right. It's so funny. I remember one, uh, one time when, um, when I was, when Kai was younger, I noticed I was starting to get a bit of a dad bod. And I was like, I don't know what's happening. I'm eating the same amount as usual. And my friend was like, I've been at your house and you don't know how much of your son's food you're eating. Cause you know, right. It's like, I don't want, I'm, this is my money. You're about to throw away. No, somebody's eating it. I'm eating it. And (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even realize I was, it's like, that's my way of getting back the cinnamon toast crunch. I'm just going to take your leftovers. Yeah. It's still mine. You didn't know it. Exactly. (laughs) To come off of that, though, I recently read a book and it's one of these New York Times bestsellers. A person I love recommended it to me. I'm not going to name the name because, you know, we don't need to go that far. But the author tried way too hard to be funny, way too hard to be funny to the point where it almost made it hard to take some of the lessons from the book. Oh, wow. Like it was a valuable book. But reading it, I'm like, this this dude's just trying too hard. You can feel like he probably rewrote that joke four times before he put it in. And he laughed when he did it. Like, just tried way too hard. And one of the subtle things I loved about your book, 
there's so much I love on the important content side. But one of the subtle things that I loved about your book was the way that you subtly lace the humor into it. So as I'm reading it on multiple airplanes, I'm giggling. I mean, I've gotten to know you a little bit over the years, so I can kind of picture it a little bit. But you were so subtle with how you did it that like the joke wasn't the main point of the story or the page or the chapter or whatever. It was just this little piece to make somebody smile as they were reading through, honestly, some stuff that can be really heavy. And I think you did a great job with that. I appreciate that, man. And the timing of that comment is so interesting because I was thinking, I was literally upstairs just like five minutes before I came down for the podcast. And I was thinking of this random thought. And it's so funny that you said that today. I was like, I think one of the biggest disappointments about the book is that I weaved in a Dragon Ball Z reference and nobody mentioned it. <laughs> so I am so glad that you said it. But you're you're absolutely right. It's such a heavy topic. I just wanted to bring some levity and humanity to it because we can be so tense and it's that tension and that emotion, that fear that holds us back. And when you can see that somebody who, who clearly, I clearly care about the topic can introduce a little bit of humor, I think it gives everybody else a little bit of license to, to relax a little bit and just accept their own humanity as they go through this difficult conversation. You did a masterful job. And we probably should have said this in advance. The title of the book is Having Difficult Conversations About Race. So when we, t- when we talk about a heavy topic, there it is. Um, and you, you, did, you did a spectacular job writing it. We're going to talk a lot more about that in the time that we have. But there may be people on the planet that don't know who you are. I, I wouldn't know, <laughs> but th- there might be people. Your network is astounding. All the work that you do is amazing. So from a business standpoint, you run the American Negotiation Institute and you are involved in all things negotiation, including your Negotiate Anything podcast. So the first question I'll ask just to get the conversation rolling and give people a little bit of an idea of who you are, where did your obsession with negotiation come from? Oh, that's a great question. Um, So for me, I'm a recovering people pleaser. I was profoundly bad at negotiation. And it wasn't until I went to law school that I learned how to negotiate. And it was the first, it was like a massive eureka moment for me because it was the first time I realized this is a skill, not a talent. I can actually get better and learn and overcome this challenge. And so for me, when it comes to negotiation, every time I did it, it was a vote in confidence for the man that I wanted it to be. Um, And so for me, I love negotiating and resolving conflicts for that reason. Even though it was still scary, I had the confidence to do it because I knew I had the skills. And even more so than negotiating myself, I got pleasure from teaching that to other people because my, our motto at the American Negotiation Institute is we believe the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. So for me, it's just, it's all about spreading that message. So everybody has an opportunity to live the best version of their lives by leaning in and having these tough conversations. That's a great setup, man. And your story is amazing for people to dig into it, where your family comes from, where you come from, all you've achieved from your law degree to what are you like ranked in the top zero, 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 one percent of chess players online or something like that. Yeah, that's listen, man, it's not even admirable anymore at this point. It's it's more of it. It's an addiction that is is quantifiable. There's worse addictions to have, but I call it out a little bit joking, obviously, but I think it's important because that speaks to your strategic mindset. And in a lot of our previous conversations and in reading your book, there were times where there were just little lines, little things you've told me in previous conversations, little lines in your book 
that just speak to this greater level of awareness and perception and understanding and really layers to your thinking and your communication as you approach these topics. Did that come from chess? Is that just kind of how your brain is wired? Is this sort of always how you've thought and operated? Because most people I meet don't process conversations and communication problems that way. Yeah, I think about it this way. There, there are all these different things that I've seen, and I try to turn the world into my library. This was a, a quote from Kobe Bryant, actually. He's like, when you're obsessed with your craft, the world becomes your library. You can see these lessons everywhere. I mean, think about you in jujitsu. So you have position, then submission. You're not trying to jump into an arm bar like, without having the proper position first, right? And so in chess, it's very similar. And it's funny because they call jujitsu human chess. In chess, it's all about controlling the center. And sometimes you don't know when the opportunities are going to come. But you know, if you follow simple chess principles, controlling the center, moving your pieces into the right position, those type of things, you'll be ready when the opportunity presents itself. And I think being able to take these little interesting strategic lessons from just different things, the legal background and other just life lessons I've learned, I think it makes it a little bit more accessible to people. And I think when you when you think about negotiation, conflict resolution, um, in, traditionally speaking, it's a scary topic. You think the people who are going to teach it are stuffy and boring, and it's often written in a very academic language that's tough to understand. And for me, I just want to break it down and, and make it easy for people so they can actually do what they want to do in the conversation. That's awesome. And I, the quote is, I think, spot on. The world becomes your library because everything you see ties into the one thing you can't stop thinking about. It's, it's how our brains are wired. And unfortunately, even in jujitsu, all too often, I still feel like a pawn, by the way. So, but I, but I, I certainly appreciate the connection. Um, with your obsession, part of your obsession with negotiation is not only do you still get involved and you still participate in negotiations and advise and mediate and you do all these things on some really cool topics that I learned reading. I shouldn't say really cool. That's a poor way to say it. Extremely important topics. Some of the healthcare related topics and things that you're still involved with that go outside of the typical like business focus that people might think is out there or straightforward you know, legal background that you have. But you also run, I believe, the world's biggest, most listened to negotiation podcast which means you've talked to, I'm assuming at this point, thousands of people for how long you've been doing it and gotten so many great perspectives from so many amazing different angles. If we can just talk about that for a second, and I, I could, would never imagine that you could remember all of the conversations that you've had, but thinking back to being on the other side of the table here, what are a few of the like aha moments you've had listening to other people share their insights man it's it's that's an easy question the biggest aha moment is the consistency of what people say so think about you police interrogation right okay cool that's that's a unique perspective probably very different from a school teacher wait a second interesting they there's a lot of places where they overlap and so seeing that consistency between all sorts of people because we might have relationship therapists school teachers hostage negotiators lawyers doctors everybody social workers we've had it all and then every once like in every episode there are these consistent themes that run and so once you can boil it down to those essential elements you get a core set of skills that you can utilize in every single conversation in every single context and then you can build more higher level strategic tactical knowledge on top of that 
But at the end of the day, for the majority of the conversations, if you can manage emotions, ask questions, listen effectively, all of these things, if you can just master the fundamentals, it gets you through like 99% of the difficult conversations you have day to day. I couldn't agree with that more. And talk about when you're obsessed with your craft, the world is your library. What you just said mirrors essentially what I thought when I heard you talk about chess and say, control the center. Yes. Because when you think about it, that is what, that's the center, right? That's what we have control over. Can I be prepared enough to control my emotions? Because a lot of preparation is strategic, valuable, sure, but it helps me control my emotions because I don't have to think about how I'm going to react or what I'm going to say or what I'm going to do. That's not, that piece is under control. So can I develop a perspective and prepare enough to control my emotions, which then allows me to listen, to connect with other people and problem solve and begin to move the pieces around the negotiation board? Bingo. That's, ex- that's exactly it. And what I realized, man, and, and this, was, this was a massive revelation, and it's so funny how you can see not just the consistency and strategic approach in difficult conversations, but just in life in general, most of the time, when it comes to success in anything, it's just about consistent application of the fundamental principles and having the discipline to do it over time. A lot of times in difficult conversations, it's not a matter of knowing the really cool zinger to say or or utilizing some super high level strategy. Sometimes it is, but most of the time it's not. It's a simple question of, can you apply the fundamentals long enough? That's it. And sometimes when you look at other people's conversations, I mean, it it would be cool if you could see this objectively, but I can see like, wow, you did it. You did it for 12 minutes and then you got pissed off. (laughs) Then you gave up on the person. Then you got impatient. If you would have given it 15 more minutes, that's all you needed. Listen, empathize, summarize, right? But you broke down, you broke down. And so you have to be a disciplined communicator. Dare I say a disciplined listener (laughs) in order to be effective in these conversations. (laughs) You can dare to say that all you want. (laughs) Um, Dude, that quote, the discipline necessary to apply the fundamentals long enough. Before we hit record on this, we were talking about our boys. Sports, pick a sport, any sport. They all come down to executing the fundamentals. Pick any superstar athlete. Yeah, we make it, we watch them make this spectacular play. Well, that spectacular play was able to happen based on the relentless execution of fundamentals that put them in the position to make that spectacular play. So that is so true. And then the patience to stick to it throughout a conversation. One of the things, I'm sure we've talked about this before, but time is the enemy of empathy. The more I let that clock start wearing on me or the more I start focusing on it, I lose that ability that you're talking about. That's so critical. Yeah. Oh, that's a great quote. I love that. I love that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's like it's almost like we have a shot clock in our mind. And um, once we once it goes past a certain point, it's like, you know what? I was a nice guy a little bit ago, <laughs> but yeah. now I'm fed up. <laughs> I'm going to bully through this conversation. Yeah, he's gone. Chin down, elbows up. Here we go. <laughs> um, that the the comp the everything that you just said the the consistency across different conversations, different backgrounds, different professions, specialities. I think it's a perfect segue to jump into something that I really wanted to talk to you about today. There are so many, like quite literally dozens, if not hundreds, that I'd love to talk to you about. But having to choose something to frame the conversation about, I really wanted to frame it around your new book. 
And yeah. I'll link to it in the notes. And I want to point as many people to it as I can. So I was interested in reading it because I knew you a little bit. So yes, the topic, having difficult conversations about race is important. And it's one that I would like to learn much more about how to do and how to do effectively because of a lot of the things that you mentioned early in the book, the fear, the apprehension, the competing perceptions, kind of what you just talked about there. I was the nice guy for a little while, but then something flipped and now I don't feel like I can be the nice guy anymore. And I got so much from it and I learned so much from it and we talked about this a little bit before you wrote a wonderful book on a critical topic. You also wrote a wonderful book on how to elevate your listening and persuasive communication skills around emotional conversations. And you framed it around one particular topic. So even for people to read it, yes, they're going to get so much about a topic that we all need to be much better and more fluent and more willing to engage in. But every lesson I took from that book applies to every emotional charge conversation I ever have been or ever will be a part of. So I would really like to take some time to, to highlight that. And if I may, we didn't talk about this up front, but I'm assuming because you put it in the book, you're okay with me asking. Um, you, in the very beginning of the book, you talk about what motivated you to write it. And it was a conversation yeah. with your wife. And I've never met your wife. Hopefully someday I will. When I think back to my relationship with my wife, I've had any number of those moments. I honestly, I couldn't recount them all where I was yeah. stubborn. I was angry. I was shut off. I had everything all planned out, figured out, thought I understood it all. And then one word, one comment, one question. And now I'm standing in the kitchen, staring at my shoes, feeling like I just got hit by the softest, most loving sledgehammer I've ever been hit with. So to the degree that you're comfortable, can you please take us back to the conversation that you had with Whitney, kind of what it made you realize that led to you writing such an important book? Yeah. Wow. Great question. I, we have to give them some context first. So I did some civil rights work at fresh out of law school. So I had a law degree, master of public policy. So I was leaning more on the policy side and um, dealing with uh, health inequities. So uh, that, that's really heavy. It's really heavy. And, you know, traveling the country, helping health experts produce persuasive arguments in the policy realm in that regard. And I just never felt like I was having an impact. I wasn't defeating racism. You know, I couldn't see the numbers changing based on my impact. So I got burnt out. It just was profoundly sad. And I, I was like, I, I have to get out of here. So I quit. And um, when I say I quit, man, I was like all the way out to the point where I don't want to talk about race. I don't want to hear about it. If anybody talks about race or politics or any identity-based type of conversation, I'm, I'm checking out of the conversation if it's in person. And if it's online, I am immediately unfollowing them and blocking them on Instagram and whatnot, including Whitney, because Whitney was constantly posting about it. And I was like, listen, wait, I can't, I cannot consume any more of this. And so then in 2020, when we had all of that social unrest, um, I was doing the exact same thing, the ostrich technique. and. Um, Whitney said, you're always telling people to lean in and have these conversations. How does it look for you, especially considering that you're a black man and people look to you for advice and counsel and you are nowhere to be seen on this topic? And I was like, stop listening to my podcast. <laughs> I'm tired of you being persuasive here. But she was right. 
She was right. And that was the conversation that got me back into it. I'm certainly happy that it happened from the outside because what it produced and what I was able to take from it, it speaks so much to your relationship with your wife and the opportunity to have those conversations and listen to those things. Unfortunately, I don't know, on either side of the spouse equation, how many spouses would have been comfortable sharing that and or receiving that. So that that says a lot right there. But I imagine that was kind of one of those like, oh, man, like. Not only are you right, but I feel worse for you feeling right. And now I got all this stuff I got to go do that I know I need to do, yep. but I've been rationalizing away. Yep. That's so, exactly what it was, man. So with that being said, you guys had that profound conversation. One of, I can imagine, only imagine how many you two have had with each other. It leads to you start working on the book. If I understand correctly, part of the motivation for writing the book was to help people get past the reasons why they're not having these conversations. In your experience, what are some of the most common reasons why people are avoiding the topic? But I think the biggest one is fear. So there, there's a fear of offending people. They, I don't want to say the wrong thing. Thing. There are so many different ways I can fail in these conversations. So I don't want to even risk having the conversations because I might say the wrong thing. Um, other people might be afraid of getting canceled. I've seen other people say things and I didn't even think what they said was that bad. And now they got canceled. Like they they lost their job. They lost their friends, their social circle, their, their status in the community. Why would I do it when that could potentially happen to me? For some people, it's I've had this conversation so many times and it, and nobody listens to me. Nobody respects the opinion or my experience or anything like that. So I'm just tired of talking to people who just don't get it. Just so many things. And all of those things are legitimate. I, I think that's the, the toughest part about it. The, the most um, devastating thing about a lot of excuses is that they're valid. That's a legitimate fear, right? And so for me, a big part of the book was helping people to understand a couple of things. First, again, going back to the motto, the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. We can recognize that they're challenges, but we can't fix those challenges unless we lean in and have the conversation. That's number one. And then number two, with this book, I was very clear at the beginning. I'm not teaching people in this book how to think about race. I'm teaching them how to talk about race. It's a skills-based book. And if you can rely on your skills in the conversation, then you can be more effective in the conversation. And a lot of those things that you're afraid of can disappear mainly because you have the skills to avoid it. And we also talked about in the book, understanding that you will make mistakes. It's inevitable. And recovering from those mistakes is a skill that you can develop as well. And so I think leaning heavily on the skills is, is what helps people to feel more comfortable leaning into the, the conversation. Here's where we're going to weave away from the topic of the book for a minute and then come right back to it. But it gets back to the earlier comment that you wrote a book about elevating our persuasive communication and strategic listening skills and you framed it around conversations about race. And right there, just earlier this week, I was teaching a program, had a group for a day, and a couple of the folks in there talked about, and they were very open and honest, and I appreciate that, needed, feeling like they needed to develop their confidence. And one of the things that we talked about was go back to the process, separate the process from the results. All too often, our perception of our confidence comes from our perception of the results that we either have achieved or we failed to achieve. But if we get back to the process and what are the skills and the fundamentals that we need to put in place in order to achieve the results, now we can grow our confidence based on the repetition 
to the process and the development of those skills. Because if we develop the right skills and use the right process over time, the results will begin to speak for themselves. And I, as a reader, really appreciated how you set up the book that way. Thank you. No, it it set the tone for the whole thing. And I really appreciate it. Thank you. That means a lot. And because I, again, I I realize when it comes to these conversations, a lot of times we're asking people to have this super hard conversation about the topic of race when the majority of us haven't had the time to even learn how to have difficult conversations in general. And so when I was thinking about how I'm going to write this book, again, I wanted to be a skills-based book. I said, all right, the, the thing is, if you can lean in and you can have a conversation on this topic, really the, the, top, the title of the book is how to have difficult conversations about insert topic here. Yeah. That's it. I would agree. And I don't want to say anything that takes away from the critical importance of the conversations about race. When I was reading it, that was one of my big takeaways. Difficult conversations about whatever you got to have a difficult, that playbook, those skills apply to them all. One of the things that I loved, which gets back to your strategic mindset that we talked about before, was how throughout the book, you emphasize the importance of an outcome mindset, being focused on outcomes of conversations as opposed to the more tactical, emotional, immediate things that we feel in conversations. So now to weave this back to conversations about race, and honestly, from my standpoint, asking the question, It applies to anybody's experience, perception, their place in the conversation, their perspective in the conversation. How have you worked to develop the skill of maintaining that outcome-based mindset in these conversations that are so emotionally charged or can be so emotionally charged? Yeah, for sure. I, I think, first of all, it has to, we have to become aware of the fact that there is an outcome that we want. And a lot of people go into these conversations not to communicate, but to emote, really. And in these conversations, I I talked about what I call cathartic communication, where our goal is to just unleash our emotions in this situation um, without concern about the outcome at all. And so really, what is it that we want to do in the conversation? There's probably some kind of goal. But in each of the conversations, understanding needs to be a massive part of the goal because if you can't if you can't understand the other person then you can't communicate effectively you can't ultimately be persuasive so that's goal number 1 for any conversation but then we have to think about this are we work, are we at work are we addressing an issue of of racism okay well that there's a specific outcome hey i want the racism to stop <laughs> okay pretty straightforward pretty easy right um something else i talked about in the book is i've been accused of racism and it wasn't fair Okay, well, I want to make sure that my reputation is in a good place. And I also want to make sure that my relationship with this person is in a good place. So as long as we have this that shining light, that North Star for us in terms of where we want to go in the conversation, all you need to do is steer, steer the conversation in that direction while still adhering to the fundamentals of the conversation, right? The fundamentals of negotiation, conflict resolution, effective communication and listening. But you're just keeping in mind where we want to go and you're strategically moving in that direction. But again, so many people lose sight of the fact that we're coming to these conversations with a purpose and you can't be strategic if you don't have a goal. And so we have to start off with that goal first. Amen. (laughs) How do you know where you're going if you don't have the destination? So having that goal. And then the challenge of course becomes maintaining adherence to the goal and the process necessary to achieve it when our emotions are a roller coaster during the conversation. 
one of the things that, again, you mentioned in multiple places in the book, and I believe it ties into the outcome piece, is your concept of micro-negotiations. I feel like in where you and I, what we do overlaps in places, not in others. One of the places that it overlaps, I believe, is not trying to, for lack of a better word, win in one conversation. Not trying to achieve your goal in one conversation. I was working with a CEO earlier this week, giving him some feedback and ideas he'd asked for on how to potentially change his performance and communicate the performance and communication of one of his employees. And I ended it by saying, and it's not going to happen in one conversation. And he literally went, that's the problem. <laughs> like, I don't want to have five conversations. I want to have one. And yet he was laughing and had a great attitude about it, but it was true. So especially in these emotionally charged conversations, can you talk a little bit about applying that micro negotiation strategy? So I'm not trying to necessarily achieve my goal here now today, but begin over a series of time to get that train going down the tracks to where the goal achieves itself. Bingo. Yeah, it's such a critical point because a lot of times the reason why we fail in these conversations is because we're trying to achieve an impossibility. How am I going to get this person to change their entire worldview in one conversation that's 15 minutes long? It's just not possible, right? And um, I came up to, with this concept when I was, mic- when, when I was mediating because um, in, I used the facilitative model of mediation. So quick mediation la- lesson. So we have the, the facilitative model where all you are doing is you're essentially a conduit for communication. I'm not trying to force people to come to a deal. I, it doesn't matter to me whether or not a deal is reached. I'm just trying to make sure that we elevate the conversation so you can actually communicate. And it's more like facilitated negotiation. But there was something that I did that increased my, my closing rate by 20%. And again, that's not my goal, but I recognized I was getting 20% more deals. And um, what was it? After we had reached the point of a negotiation or the con- of the mediation where it was clear that they're stuck, instead of saying, hey, sorry, I guess you're going to have to continue litigating. I said, hey, we've made a lot of progress in this conversation. Let's reschedule. Let's have a second session. After the second session, hey, we, we're still getting closer. Let's have a third session. And then we would close in the third session, right? And so essentially what ends up happening is that people just need more time to adjust. And so I came up with this concept called persuasive weight. Some conversations are just too heavy to carry all the weight at one time. So imagine if we're in the gym and you have the entire rack of weights right in front of you. And so your your job at the at the gym is to move that rack of weights from 5 all the way up to 100 to the other side. You're not going to try to do that all at one time. That'd be absurd. You're going to go and make multiple trips back and forth because it's impossible to carry that much weight. Same is true in difficult conversations. The conversation is simply too heavy for people to make that great of an adjustment in one conversation. So micro negotiations just keep you moving slowly toward that goal by being incremental. Dude, that was gold. Gold. I wrote down persuasive weight. That that illustration, the explanation of it, spot on, on point. When we talk about the emotional piece of this that can make it so hard to do, again, conversations about race or other emotional topics, you had a line in your book that caused me to sit up. Well, many, but this one particular caused me to sit up, smile, highlight, circle, dog ear the page. Got to ask him about this. Please explain to everybody listening the difference between passion and persuasion. Oh, yes. 
This is a big one because when it comes to passion, passion is essentially an emotion that's directed toward a target, right? And so a lot of times we feel as though the passion by itself can lead the day. Oh, let me inject a little bit more passion. They don't understand how strongly I feel about that. And now this is not to say that passion doesn't have its place. When you think about the, uh, what is it? The persuasive triad, the Aristotle's approach to, uh, to persuasion, we have um, ethos, logos, and pathos, right? So we have ethics, logic, and passion. So we understand that even hundreds of years ago, it was understood that passion played a role in persuasion, but it's not enough to carry the day. And so a lot of times people are really frustrated because they believe in something so strongly. They feel so passionately about it. But then when they have the conversation, the other person doesn't have those same feelings and they're not persuaded. And so a lot of times what we have to recognize is that the passion that you have by itself is not enough to win the day. You have to develop the skill of persuasion. That doesn't happen organically. And in a lot of these types of conversations, <laughs> what we're having to do is we're having to reprogram our minds because the natural thing that we want to do is not what leads us to success in these conversations. I have a, a simple rule that I follow my, in, in these conversations. It's that the more I feel compelled to say something in the heat of the moment in the conversation, the more I realize I, prob I probably shouldn't say that thing. <laughs> I just probably shouldn't say it. Who knows? It might work, but there have been more times than not that it doesn't work. And all I need to do is what? Go back to the fundamentals of negotiation, persuasion, and listening. I don't need to have an, like an impassionate little uh, you know, oration here in the middle of this conversation, because most of the time that's off-putting and annoying, especially if the other person doesn't agree. Well, first, congratulations for being the first person to drop Aristotle on my podcast. So check that one <laughs> off, the, off the bingo card or whatever it is. Well done. Um, you're so right. When so you and I are passionate about similar things, so let's just say communication, listening, right? So if you and I are talking together and you bring something up, and I see your passion for the topic, it energizes my passion for the topic because we have that similarity. But when people bring passion or they allow their passion to override their conversation, it can literally not just be off-putting; it can come across as attacking. Like somebody else is attacking me. They're not listening to me. They're trying to run me over. So race, how many completely valid and legitimate, passionate opinions and experiences can people have about this topic? I certainly can't know and wouldn't, wouldn't be able to speak to it. Yeah. So for somebody who is leading with that passion, they have every right to do it in any conversation. They have every right to do it. But is that passion now erasing persuasion? which gets back to your long-term outcomes and keeping your center and all those other things that you've talked about previously. But when I saw that line, I feel like that's a topic that comes up. I'm sure in your work and in mine consistently is separating the passion from the persuasion, understanding the double-edged sword, not only how does somebody else react to it, but how does that passion now start directing our emotions? Because you're right. How often is the first thing I want to say something that's going to make me feel better? And if it's going to make me feel better, how's it going to make you feel? Exactly. And then we just destroyed this whole thing. Bingo. And, and one of the things that I, I, I said a lot of times in the book, I'm, I say, listen, if any of the tips that I give you don't feel good to you, then don't use it. Take what works for you and take what doesn't. 
However, I will say this. What I'm sharing in, in these in, in this book is science. It's tried and true. It's tested, right? So you can do what you want. Be as passionate as you want, but the psychology stays the same. The science stays the same. So if that's the way you want to do it, that's fine. Then read this book so you can get a thorough understanding of the consequences and an understanding of why the conversation isn't working. Yeah, it's... We like to call it the lowest common denominator theory of communication. If I have one conversation and I feel like the person I talked to didn't, when my message didn't resonate, they didn't get it, we didn't connect, maybe that's me, maybe that's them. But if I have 10 conversations with 10 unrelated people and I couldn't get any of them to resonate, to understand, what are the odds that it's 10 different people's fault? (laughs) Pretty slim. Like that's on me. So, to your point, and I don't want to make light of such a serious topic, but I think that's a great call out. Communicate how you want. Represent yourself, your ideas, especially on such serious issues, the way that you feel <clears throat> represents your interests, please. But if we're doing it in a passionate way in any conversation and not getting the results we want, maybe it's time to revisit the science and the psychology, not to invalidate the passion, but to redirect the passion to a way that we can be more successful. Absolutely. And again, that key, that's the key word that you said at the end. The goal is to be successful. We're not pandering or anything like that. No, we are recognizing what it takes to be successful. And one of the points that I made in the book too, is that I recognize that actually for guys like you and me, it's, it's almost easier for us to do this because we recognize that in our professions, for you as a police officer, for me as a lawyer, a lot of times I have to sacrifice my emotions in order to be affected. I can't go into a negotiation with opposing counsel and the opposing counsel is, is, you know, let's just say off putting. Right. And then I just, yeah. (laughs) And I can't just lash out at them, tell them how, how I feel and how horrible they are and things like that. What am I going to do? Go back to my client and say, Oh man, you should have seen it. I get, I, big old right hook. I hit them hard. They hated that. Uh, but I let them know. I let them know. And the client's like, yeah, that's great. So, so did we get the deal? No, man, they hate us. No, we are far apart. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're never going to get the but deal. I, we are never going, we're getting sued. But I, but listen, they know I told them I can't do that. It's my job to sometimes sacrifice my emotions, put it to the side for the greater goal. And so the thing is, for, for people who are very, very passionate about this topic, it feels almost like an inappropriate concession to put that away because the emotions are so real, they're so valid, and they're based on, on reality. But in order to be successful, sometimes we have to recognize that that passion, that emotion can actually lead us astray. And so again, just coming back to it, the fundamental principles just rely on that, especially when you start to feel it bubbling up. Just say, okay, what, wh- how would I approach this using compassionate curiosity? How would I approach this using a disciplined listening method, right? And those, those, those systems are there for you in times exactly like this, because I have to recognize, Mike, that sometimes I'm in a conversation and I can't trust myself because of my level of emotionality, but I can always trust my skills and I can always trust those frameworks. And amen. You teased us with the phrase compassionate curiosity. Unpack that. What's that? What, what does that mean to you? 
Yeah. So this is a framework I created that helps you with the internal and external negotiation. So it's three steps. First, acknowledge and validate emotions. Second, get curious with compassion. And third, join problem solving. So it helps you to know what to say and when to say it for maximum impact. So if there's an emotional challenge, you acknowledge and validate the emotion. So you label that emotion and then you listen and validate it. Um, And validation doesn't mean agreement. It doesn't mean endorsement. Really, it just means that you are willing to listen and then you're willing to reflect back the fact that you are listening to the other side. And I like to try to take it a step further and think of myself almost like a, a grade school math teacher where they're answering and they're showing their work and I'm trying to find ways to give them partial credit right? A lot of times people at that point make the mistake of trying to counter what the person says with emotionality. But no, step one, acknowledging and validating emotions is all about empathy and lowering the emotional temperature in the room. Then you're transitioning into getting curious with compassion. So this is getting compassionate with a, getting curious with a compassionate tone. So we don't scare them away with our passion sometimes. And we're gathering information. We're aiming essentially by gathering this information. And then the third step is just collaborative problem solving. And then when you reflect it on the inside, it becomes a tool to help you to make better decisions, manage your own emotion, and sometimes overcome biases too. So you're going to acknowledge and validate the way that you're feeling. What am I feeling? What are the emotions? Plural, because oftentimes it's more than one. Why am I feeling that? I'm going to get an answer with precision. And then the last one, the third step, joint problem solving, reconciling the differences between my heart and mind. So what is it internally? that would make me feel better in this situation. But then at the end of the day, what should I actually do? What's the decision that I should make? And what should I say? So it gives you a little bit more stability in the conversation too. So much gold in there. So much. To pull out just one tiny little piece, understanding what I'm feeling and why. And so many times we blame other people for how we feel. Something they said, something they did. And when in reality... It is our interpretation of what they said or did after we filtered it through our expectations we had going into the conversation. So if we can start to understand that, we can do a better job compartmentalizing our emotions to then execute. Bingo. What you're talking about. Exactly. It gives you that so clarity as, that's so important. Sure. So as I was reading your book, I don't know how many times I was like, that's my favorite. No, that's my favorite. No, that's my favorite. And then I got to one. I got to one line in your book that I not only wasn't topped in your book for my personal bias and perspective, but hasn't been topped in any recent book that I've read for sure. I have a short-term memory, so I'm not going to go too far back, but certainly in any recent book. There's one line in your book, and I don't know. Sometimes when I teach, I'll say something, and I'll expect a big response from the group, and there's not. I'm like, well, that missed. And then 10 minutes later, I'll say something that I put no thought into whatsoever, and people are like, oh, that's it. and like... That's the one. (laughs) So I don't know if this is the same for you or not, but this one line in your book, when you lose your cool, you give your counterpart the excuse not to listen to you. I will be quoting you in that line and nearly every presentation, every seminar, the next book I write, that's going to be in there somewhere. I might remember to give you credit for it by the (laughs) end. But the power in that line, man, when you lose your cool, you give your counterpart the excuse not to listen. Please talk us through that. Add something to that. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Okay, here's a a fun example, right? You remember when we were... (laughs) 
when we I was sitting in the wrong Zoom meeting uh, before in this uh, this call. I wasn't going to tell. <laughs> I said, I'll, I'll own it. I'll own it. And um, you said, hey, you, you made the joke. You're like, hey, if you don't want to if you don't want to do the podcast, just let me know. And I said, yeah, my strategy is to be super toxic. So you break up with me. Right. <laughs> and, so, and so that's essentially what happens in these conversations, too, sometimes. Right. So we're, we're struggling to get through. We're getting a little bit frustrated, but we're holding true to the fundamentals. They say something that triggers us. Then we lose our cool and we lash back out. And then they say, you see, that's why I don't like people like you. This is why I don't listen to people like you. This is why I don't agree with this whole thing and everything like that. And it really sullies the rest of the conversation. We lose a lot of credibility, even if we're saying things that are objectively true and grounded in science, grounded in facts after that. The reality is we have lost the opportunity to truly connect because they have written us off. And it's almost like they've baited us. It's it's like in a sport. It, it, sometimes somebody will do something intentionally to get you upset and then you retaliate and the foul is called on you because the ref sees your response. And so a lot of times we have to recognize that the best strategy is to keep our stability, whatever that means in this situation, because the second we lose our cool, we also lose our credibility. Protect your center. Bingo. So true. So very true. And I don't want anybody to think as I'm going through this conversation that in any way, shape, or form, I'm indicating or thinking that these emotions aren't valid or that these being triggered isn't valid. The emotions are all valid. It's completely acceptable and to be expected to be triggered. But in the context of a bigger conversation with more important goals, and especially as you illustrated in the book, if you're having these conversations with people that you work with, you're going to see them tomorrow for lots of tomorrows. Unless, as you illustrate in the book, they did something so egregious they can't be here anymore. Right. For the majority of these conversations, you're going to see them tomorrow. If it's somebody that's in your social circle, you're going to see them tomorrow. If it's somebody in your church, your family, whatever, you're going to see them tomorrow. So with that in mind, how do we continue to keep that long term? I say it rhetorically, but how do we continue to keep that long term goal, that outcome in mind as we go through it? And when you lose your cool, you validate all of those expectations, assumptions, stereotypes. And now it's just over. You've given me the excuse to exit this conversation that I maybe didn't want to be in to begin with. So thank you. For yeah. That. Yeah, man, no worries. And, and it, it gives an opportunity to fuel these really problematic biases. So, I mean, for me, think about me as a mediator, as a lawyer and things like that. If I lose my cool, it's perceived very differently as a, as a larger black man. It's like, oh, the angry black man, black men are aggressive. I knew he was going to be like that. Think about it from your perspective. If you lose your cool because somebody's attacking you, it's like, nah, you see a racist white cop. That's, just got, that's exactly what they do. Right. And so we, we allow ourselves to fuel their narrative to, to disempower what we want to say next. And so is it fair? It's absolutely not fair. Is it legitimate and true? It absolutely is. And so we have to operate not on what we wish the world was, but what we know the world to be. And a lot of times we, we hope <laughs> that we will be validated just because of the truth of our convic convictions. But a lot of times, unfortunately, we just feed into the biases that other people have about us and it makes it much harder for us to connect. It's exactly what we do. Feeding into their biases is a great way to say it. You've been super gracious with your time. You've got so much going on. There's one more topic for so many, but at least for today, one more topic for the book. I wanted to dive into you really fast. You said something in your book and I might misquote it, 
but you talked about the difference between, was it listening and validation? Yes. Yes. Bring me back. That, to that. was an, that was an interesting one. I, I learned this one from Joe Navarro who wrote the, this great book on, on body language, what everybody is thinking, um, F, former FBI agent. And so for him, he said he focuses more on validation. And for me, it was really interesting because in order to validate, you have to listen effectively. So it, it's a more holistic approach in, a, in certain ways. And so, for instance, we, we listen, we empathize, we summarize. That's, that's good. But I've taken it to the level where I actually try to envision myself from their perspective. Like, what do I look like to them? So right now we're on Zoom, right? And so it's like, okay, well, what does my background look like? How do I look? How am I appearing? Those type of things, because it changes the way that I might approach it. So let me think about, we, we both have kids the same age, like your, your son is six, my son is seven. And I think if I get really, if I get upset with him, I mean, I'm like twice his height. Like, that's a kind of scary thing. Imagine if Shaq was yelling at you, it was like, please, sir, <laughs> just back up a little bit. You're terrifying, right? And so just keeping that in mind helps me to adjust my behavior in order to match the appropriate expectations of the other person. So if I'm trying to be an empathetic listener, what does that look like from their perspective? So for instance, with our sons, like it's not me standing over him. It's me maybe squatting down and looking into his eyes, right? If, if I'm listening and I truly want to, to be part of the conversation and show the person that I'm listening, depending on the way the person's listening, I might be leaning in or I might have a pensive look with my hand on my chin. But even if I'm cold, I will not allow myself to cross my arms just because I know how that would be perceived. And so it adds different layers in these types of interactions uh, that allows you to connect on a deeper level. And again, these are nonverbal things. This goes beyond what you're saying. And if you can incorporate that into your whole communication strategy, it just amplifies your ability to connect. I love it. And I lied to you. There's one more thing that I want to ask. <laughs> you talked about, there's hundreds of more things I want to ask you, but for today, there's one more thing. Um, you talked a lot about developing skills and how in these specific conversations about race, but in other similar conversations as well, we can help reduce our fear, increase our effectiveness, be more successful when we realize that there are real skills that we can develop and use in these conversations. One of the skills you talk about developing is intentional empathy. And it's relatively common that I'll meet people who will say, well, you know, I'm not naturally an empathetic person. So how can I show empathy? That feels insincere to me. That feels inauthentic to me. How do I do that? How do we develop the skill of intentional empathy? It takes a lot of practice. Let's start with that. It's, it's not a, a switch you can flip, but I think it's really empowering to help people recognize that you can utilize empathy without feeling empathetic. That's a massive revelation for a lot of people. And so we have to remember empathy is a skill. It's the ability to understand what the other side sees, thinks, and feels about the situation. So what do they see? What is their perspective um, uh, when it comes to this con conversation? What context do, clues are they utilizing? How, how do they see the situation? Um, how do they feel about it? What are their emotions behind it? And then also, what are their thoughts about it? The emotions and thoughts are two different layers of understanding, too. And I think one of the things that holds people back when it comes to empathy is the fact that it's really hard to empathize when you don't agree with the other person. It almost feels like I said before, as a concession. And so mm -hmm. once we've recognized that our only job is to let the person know that I'm here, I'm listening, I'm reflecting back that understanding and make the person feel seen, that's it. 
You don't need to feel what they feel or agree with what they're saying. And in the book, I juxtapose that to um, psychological empathy. And I think a lot of times we can do the people a disservice by not talking about the distinction between intentional empathy and psychological empathy. Intentional empathy is a skill like we described, but psychological empathy is not. It's, it's not even a choice. It just happens. And so if we see people who are we see as part of us, as part of our tribe, as part of our team, it's easier for us to empathize with them. Right. So if we're seeing little kids playing and our kid falls and hit, hurts their knee, we're 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 going to cringe. We're going to like squint. You know, we're going to brace ourselves as if we ourselves were hurt. If we see somebody else, like, let's say another kid, we, we might respond the same way, but not with the same visceral level of response or even team sports. If somebody on our team gets hurt, we're we're going to feel that almost literally. <laughs> but if somebody on the other team gets hurt, we won't respond or we might celebrate. And so we have to recognize that if we are looking at the other person as as not part of our team, it's going to make it much difficult, much more difficult to empathize with the other person. So strategically, what we want to do is this is the psychology of rapport building. I'm going to take some time early in the conversation to show those those elements that are common between us. What are the things that that are similar between us? So I can start to develop a little bit more psychological empathy so I can see you as part of my tribe. It makes it a little bit easier for me to empathize too. I love all of that. All of it. And you're now you're touching on in-groups and out-groups and we don't have all day to have this conversation. And we're going to have to do this again. <laughs> um, but yes. let's, let's just do this, man. Um, You've got so much out there. People can find so many of your thoughts and your expertise, and I'm going to direct them to all of it, but I can't recommend enough reading this book, How to Have Difficult Conversations About Race, for anybody, from anybody, from any perspective, with any level of interest in participating and making any type of impact. Is there one thing that you want listeners to know about these conversations that we haven't touched on before we go? I think we touched on the core elements and I think it's just recognizing that, you know, there's no end to how good you can get at this skill. I think that's one of the most surprising things for me, because for me, after having hundreds of podcast interviews, um, I learn something new in every interview, no matter who the person is, what their background is, their their status in terms of like seniority, how young they are, how old they are. I always learn something new. And that's really encouraging because we can always improve no matter where we are levels wise. There's always something we can do to get better. And, and it's a journey at the end of the day. And if we start looking at every single conversation as a practice opportunity, then we will are availing ourselves to boundless levels of growth when it comes to communication. One more time on the way out the door. Speak <laughs> the truth again. Hit us hard on the way out. I'll have all the links to everywhere people can find you. But if someone is thinking right now, as soon as this conversation is over, I want to look up Kwame. Where are they going to go to find you? Awesome. LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the number one place. I, I post almost every single day. Um, and then also check out the podcast too. You seven days a week, man. <laughs> we're, we're just banging them out. Yeah, you're, you're the hardest working man in show business for sure. But the, the impact of the work you do goes well beyond the apparent reach. Your network is huge. Your amount of followers is astounding. The amount of work that you do. But earlier you mentioned like the compound effect of the lessons that you teach, how people apply them and how those trickle upstream. So, I mean, I don't know how to say it, man, but kudos, congratulations, keep it up. 
all of those things. And on a personal level, man, thank you for writing the book and thank you for having this conversation with me today. I really appreciate the opportunity. I hope people got even a portion of the value that I've gotten from the totality of the interaction between the two. And I'm excited to keep our conversations going, man. Absolutely, man. I appreciate the invite. And also, man, just kudos. This this, this does not feel like your eighth podcast interview you've done, man. You are a pro. So, And I've done over 100 interviews on other people's shows. Like you, You've got a special skill for this. So keep it up. I'm excited for you. I appreciate it, man. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend. We'll see you soon. Kwame, once again, dude, thank you so much for taking the time out of your insane schedule to be here today with us and share all of your insights. I hope by the time this goes live, your boys have had all of the cinnamon toast crunch that they desire and you've improved your ability to share that with them. But seriously, man, thank you so much for being here, having such an open conversation about such an amazing, amazingly important topic. And I hope that everybody here got something that they can take not just into these difficult conversations about race, but into our difficult conversations about anything. And of course, Kwame's everywhere online. So please check out his podcast and all of his material as well. I'll make sure all the links are in the show notes. Once again, on the way out, we do have to thank our sponsors, Humantel. Please head over to humantel.com and enter the code INQUASIVE25 for 25% off of all of their online rec facial recognition training. Understand what people are likely thinking and feeling as their nonverbal behavior and facial expressions shift. Also, Emotional Intelligence Magazine. Head over to ei-magazine.com to check out their ever-growing library of all emotional intelligence-related content from videos to podcasts to articles beyond educational events, check them out. And yes, as we always say, please head over to certifiedinterviewer.com for the International Association of Interviewers and check out all of the resources they have available, all the membership benefits they have available for professional investigators who are looking to attain or maintain elite status within the industry as they're focused on constantly executing morally, legally, and ethically successful investigative interviews. Thank you so much for being with us today. We really do appreciate you taking the time to watch or listen in. Thank you. Please do all the things the algorithms ask. Give Kwame the additional exposure, all of our guests the additional exposure they so richly deserve. Like the show, share the show, comment on the show, subscribe, please. Do all of those things. Let us know how you think or what you think. Did, what did you learn? What hasn't worked so well? What would you like to hear more of? Please share that with us. If you have anybody that you think would be a great guest, please let us know. We'd love to have them on the show and share their perspective with the world as well. Once again, thank you so much for being here. Please stay safe, take care of each other. We'll see you next time.